Hi, guys. Um, so I'm hoping that we can sort of jump right in, really. So if you guys wouldn't mind introducing yourselves. Um, so first up, we've got Emily. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily Cooch. Um, I currently work at the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington, D.C., um, but my background is in Russia studies and Eastern European studies. So I um, uh, I have a master's in Russian Eastern European studies from uh, UCL's School of Slavonic and East European Studies. And I spent a year studying at the High School of Economics in Moscow. Great. Thank you. And Vijay. Great. And good to meet you, Emily. And thanks for the forum, Frankie. I am obviously Vijay Menon. I'm the author of A Brown Man in Russia, uh, which published in 2018 with Blagoslav Publications. My day job is entirely different. Uh, the book is based on my experiences uh, back in the winter of 2013, backpacking through Russia. Um, I'm originally from San Francisco in the Bay Area, um, obviously came from perspective of being American and a person of color um, and wrote about those experiences. In my day job, I work in technology I'm the founder of a small software startup called Butter Payments in San Francisco. So um, that's me. Cool. Um, and yeah, yes, I'll introduce myself as well. Um, I'm Frankie. I um, volunteer at Pushkin House in London. And I guess my motivations for wanting to really talk to you guys, um, I spoke to you, Vijay, about this originally. I yeah. love Russia. I have like had an interest in Russia since I was about 15. And I love traveling there and reading about it. And yeah, absolutely loved it. But I think... I guess I became sort of acutely aware of my like the different positions of people who were sort of interested in Russia when I, I had a conversation with my friend Luke and I said you know you should go to Russia it's the best place you'll have an amazing time and he said Frankie like I'm part Indian I'm going to be racially abused absolutely not would never go and it kind of got me thinking like oh like I I didn't really think about that like I'm Jewish but you know you know my name is my surname is Shalom but and, you know, that was definitely a concern when I went, but it wasn't everything. So having had this conversation, I then thought back to Vijay's book that I came across at Pushkin House a couple of years ago and thought this would be a really great opportunity, particularly in light of everything that's happened this year, to chat about it and talk about the book and, and also talk to you, Emily, because I know you've done quite a lot of writing um, about, you know, different identities in Russian studies and how, you know, we need to be aware of these things. And, and yeah, I just hope that we can have really good conversation about it if you guys are ready to jump right in so I think we can start with your book VJ so I kind of want to start right at the beginning with the title <laughs> um so the title the book is called a brown man in Russia lessons learned on the trans-siberian so right from the outset you kind of if you, if you sort of read the title of the book, you kind of think, you know, we're going to have a conversation about race here. Like, this is what, you know, the first thing that you've kind of identified about yourself. But actually, you know, and as you know, we were preparing for this podcast, we said that that isn't the only thing that you learn in the book. You know, the book is sort of a series of lessons and none of the, all of them are race related. Actually, most of them are sort of travel related um, and the difference being a Westerner in Russia. So, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, why did you decide to position, the, you know, the book in the lens that you did? Do you think it was sort of a good one? Do you think that maybe it was slightly broader? And yeah, over to you. Yeah, yeah it's a great question. I think the racial lens is certainly important. It, it certainly defined a huge part of my experience. And part of what you alluded to in your conversation with Luke is there isn't a perspective that you consider where you go to a place and 
and your recommendation for that place needs to be different depending on the characteristics of the person. And I have that blind spot myself, right? You know, I often tell people, do solo travel, it's safe, it's easy. Maybe I'm missing out that aspect that, that, you know, if you're a woman, maybe it's not as easy or as simple as it might be for me. So I wanted to include the racial aspect because it is an important part of the experience, particularly within Russia. It's a very important part of the experience itself. Um, but as far as the book is concerned, you're right that it's more broadly sweeping. Um, one of the interesting things about the book is when you read A Brown Man in Russia, maybe your mind instantly goes to, wow, I wonder what sort of like racial abuse was hurled at him or when he came out of it. And, yeah. and one of the things my friend jokes about it and he says, look, um, the title should really be Brown Man Goes to Russia, Gets Treated Really Well, Comes Home Happy. And, and that's <laughs> largely true. And so I think part of the interesting part of the title, too, is, is people's expectations are flipped. Sure. You know, you might get thinking that something um, terrible happened on this trip. And, and I'm not going to lie. You know, there were instances of some some minor instances of racism. But overall, um, actually, I think your, your expectation gets flipped when you read the book to something that's more positive. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wanted that to come across in the title. And I wanted there to be a bit of that shock value as well. That is, I guess, you know, I read that quote. You said that in an interview about, you know, that's what your friend said the book should be called. And as you say, like, you read it. It's just, it's kind of, it's very similar to the experience I had in Russia. Like, it's kind of these bonkers series of anecdotes of things that just happen out there. And you yeah. try and explain well, to someone sure. who's, who's never been there and he's just like, it's what? Like my favorite story about when I was in Russia was I had to go, I was going to a language school and I walked down the stairs and I was ready to go. It was nine o'clock in the morning. And like, there's this huge burly Russian man still drunk from the night before, fast asleep at nine o'clock in the morning on the stairway. And I sort of had to like pole vault around him just to get down because I was so scared. But like that really kind of it come like that sort of ridiculousness really kind of comes across in the book. Um, I'm sure, Emily, you must have your own kind of stories. Yeah, I think something that's hard to understand until you go to Russia is how sort of weird and wonderful it is. Like it's hard to pigeonhole your experiences there because like you say, it's it's kind of a series of these improbable anecdotes particularly when you're when you're a westerner there but I, i'm interested i'm interested to hear the fact that vijay you found that your experience was overwhelmingly positive it's interesting how when we as people of color discuss what our experiences are that you know it's heavily defined by how we look on the outside but then of course we are all individual people so i think that your book really shows that you know your experience was um you know through the lens of you uh, of your ethnicity, but also a lot of the experiences and lessons that you learned were not from that. And I think I would say that mine was fairly similar when I was there um, in 2019. That's kind of interesting that you say that, Emily. So what is it, you know, a lot of the articles you, you uh, write on your blog, um, you've written about maybe some of the less positive experiences or maybe sort of like words of caution, you know, n- you know, just not only as a person of colour, but as a woman too, about travelling and travelling in Russia and, you know, in Central Asia. Yeah, so I, I was glad that um, Vijay mentioned the gendered dynamic here because I think that, you know, obviously there's a huge difference between the regions of Russia, like between Moscow and one of the more re- remote regions, but overall Russia is a very patriarchal society and so as a foreign woman you come in both with the perspective of looking different from everybody else but also Russians will apply their perception of how 
you as a foreign woman should behave to the way that they interact with you. So a lot of the, I suppose you could call them racial incidents that I had while I was in Russia were heavily colored by the fact that I'm an Asian woman and it probably would not have come up if I was an Asian man. So for example, a lot of the time that I would have very uncomfortable moments in taxis where the drivers would try to proposition me mm. basically because I look available as a Asian woman alone. And I think that that's something that will probably, I would imagine that men do not experience, but maybe Vijay, you have a counter to that. Uh, no, I certainly wasn't propositions. So, so I would say that that the experience overall um, is something that I allude to in my own reflections around things where, um, you know, I describe it largely as a grab bag. You know, there's often this like racial component of like your person of color versus your white. Mm-hmm. And it's a really simplistic notion. And, and the notion that I like to use is that everybody has this mixed grab bag of, of qualities about them. The three primary ones are going to be your gender, your race, and then largely your appearance, right? And, and that grab bag is going to define a lot of your experiences when you travel to different places. Uh, and, and while we often, you know, view things through it, like I would be traditionally seen as person of color, I'm privileged. I also write in the book about how there's a positive side to my grab bag. Being a male gives me autonomy over my body and gives me these experiences that that you don't have, um, that I don't have some of these unwanted experiences in like a taxi cab, for instance. Um, being brown even carries some level of advantage, right? Um, one thing I read about is like, I can travel to the Middle East, I can travel to Africa and, and not be harassed. Largely, I stay under the radar. Now, now the flip side of that is, uh, you know, most places I travel to, I'm not loved either. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, there's a perspective um, that comes into play here. But I do think the conversation um, is largely broader than just race. Right? Mm. And, and there's certainly racial incidents that I had. And having multiple racial incidents in a two-week span is not something that's normal. Right? So, so there's all these aspects to consider. But I, I think it's important to, to describe it more as a grab bag than as a certain singular sort of binomial type of framework. Definitely. It's interesting that you mentioned the kind of two sides to being a brown man in Russia, because I found there was two sides to being Asian in Russia as well, because um, on the one hand, people are, Russian people are not used to your ethnicity, not matching your national identity. So a lot of the time what I would encounter is that Russian people simply wouldn't, did not want to believe that I was a British person standing in front of them and not Chinese and not Japanese. But on the other hand, because of actually the geopolitical situation between Russia and China, on the whole, Russian perceptions of Chinese people are quite positive. Now, they may not express those very well in a very politically correct manner, but it's certainly different experience being uh, interacting with a Russian person with an Asian appearance as compared to some of my African-American friends who have gone to Russia and spent significant periods of time there because they don't have that kind of political backdrop that colors their interactions. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point as far as the political backdrop. You know, I would say obviously me being American, there there's a way that national identity conflicts with ethnic identity. Um, and, and when you just perceive me, when you view me, um, it's difficult to, to pinpoint where I'm from, um, and, and especially for Russians, right? And, um, you know, at the time, um, my appearance was, was different as well. And so I would say that uh, the national identity part of the things, if anything, played positively to some aspect for me, 
Um, one thing I do find is when the English accent, oh, sorry, excuse me, the American accent comes out. <laughs> uh, American English is obviously the real form of English. Uh, when the American <laughs> accent comes out, I, I think you get treated better. I mean, and that's a reality across Europe. It's a reality in Russia as well, just because America is an arbiter of culture and a lot of the culture that movies, music, the things that they listen to or watch, the younger people, you know, consume to speak English. Uh, you can see the perception of people change when the accent comes out. And so it's interesting that you mentioned that um, in the Chinese aspect um, and the political aspect affecting you in that way. That is interesting that you say that the the having an American accent is sort of an inherently quite helpful thing when you're traveling. Um, particularly because I know yeah. that you, I was reading about how you said that, um, well, you know, Russian people sort of stereotypically are very good at like not drawing too much attention to themselves. By contrast, right. if you ask any like British person about what American people are like, you're unbelievably good at like <laughs> attracting attention to yourselves, not in any sort of critical way or anything like that. Um, do you think like, you know, as an American person, did you feel that culture shock when you were out there? Was it was it a culture shock or was it more like, you know, I've also heard another story that you were saying about, you know, you know someone shouts on a train like Wu-Tang Clan. Like, you know, do you do you think that like these do you think, you know, I guess what I'm sort of getting at is like, do you, you know, amongst like a younger generation of people, you know, we're moving like decades post Cold War now that actually these sort of like interactions between Russian and American people are overwhelmingly quite positive. Yeah, um. You know, for the most part, the experiences I had on the train were overwhelmingly positive. Now, you can't ever take away, like, the aspect of the politics from it. And there's obviously political tension between the countries. And, and I think maybe we'll get into that later. But but from a people perspective, um, America is seen as, at least was seen in 2013, I don't know so much now, <laughs> sort of a, a, you know, a cooler place to live. Being from California is a culturally positive thing. Having an American accent is a culturally positive thing. And the story you're alluding to around Wu-Tang is that one of the stories introduced in the book, which is just around folks want to tease out where you're from. So seeing me in a train, me keeping quiet to myself, I don't know how to interact with this person. Sometimes I get Arabic spoken at me. Sometimes I would get, you know, some broken Hindi spoken at me. Sometimes, you know, people would just shout random things. And so like Wu-Tang got my attention, actually got me to speak English and to laugh a little bit and to actually have an interaction with people. So, so that's the type of thing that folks were, were really curious about, like figuring out who I was. And the really interesting part was separating out where um, there's a racial aspect to it versus just more like a, a curious aspect to it. I mm-hmm. write a lot about that in the book where I really had to check my assumptions at the door. Mm-hmm. And like your friend Luke, who um, upon hearing that Russia is a great place to visit, immediately jumps to the assumption that, you know, the entire country is racist or he'll have a tough experience there. He's not wrong. He's going to have some tough experiences there. Um, but a lot of it has to do with your own mentality, too. And so I started questioning a lot around how I was viewing those incidences. When I first thought about the Wu-Tang incident, I felt weird about it because I'm like, that's, why would you say that to someone? But when I thought more about it, I'm like, well, this guy just wants to talk to me. Yeah. Like, and he's trying to figure out the right way to do that. Should I really be upset about that? And so a lot of my experience there, I don't know if I'm like, you had this, was like a lot of thinking about like, I was initially upset about this, but like, should I really be upset about this? And, and the interactions I had once people were able to make the connection with me were by and large positive. And so it was just the creative way of trying to make that connection that made me feel uncomfortable, but should it really have? And that's a lot of where, where I spent time thinking about that difference between sort of embracing curiosity versus um, chalking it up to malintent. For me, the, the, 
the clear difference between, you know, racist intent and curiosity really appeared to me when I um, went to Uzbekistan by myself. So like, I had not traveled a lot by myself prior to that. So it was a kind of big step um, when I went there. I, linguistically, I was fine because mo- the overwhelming majority of Uzbeks speak Russian. So I was fine when I went there. But the the reception I received from people in Uzbekistan was kind of what I received in Russia, but on steroids, except in Uzbekistan, in the case of people from Uzbekistan, they were just genuinely curious because people in Uzbekistan love like K-dramas and J-dramas and stuff. So they have an overwhelming cultural influence from Asia. A lot of them go to work there for a couple of years to earn money for their families. And so they were super interested to see me speaking Russian to them, but also telling them that I was British while speaking Russian. That was just really fascinating. And I had people come up to me on the street in Samarkand asking to have a photo with me because they just couldn't believe that in their town there was someone who studied in Russia but looked Chinese but spoke English. And it did feel weird, like you say. And, you know, it's it's sort of uncomfortable because you just kind of want to go about your life and do your thing. But a lot of the time it was coming from a very innocent place of just people wanting to talk to you and wanting to have that that engagement totally and i think you wouldn't understand that without going deeper with those people and you know later you you learn that they share a lot of your common interests and there wasn't malintent behind it but the initial process is always a little bit like uncomfortable like i can resonate with a lot of what you're saying about um being the object of unsolicited filming or the object of unsolicited photos people coming up to you and taking selfies with you and, and you know I, I describe it to sort of feeling like a zoo animal at the beginning because mm-hmm. every time I'm even walking to the bathroom, you know, you've got eyes that are popping at you, uh, people that are looking, people that are whispering, people that are pointing. And it's a very natural assumption to think that's a bad thing. Um, but under the surface, it really ended up being largely positive. It's more just like, that guy looks interesting. I want to talk to him. How do I do it? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm happy that we were able to make some of those connections. It's interesting that you you say that, and Emily, you you brought up, you know, at some point you kind of, you want to go about your life and just get on with the day. Like, you don't want the, you know, your entire day, you know, you want to connect with people, and obviously when you travel, but you don't want to, like, you're not there for a project. Like, you're not, like, sending yourself out to sort of change, like, the cultural, you know, dynamic between, you know, different races and different nationalities. And that kind of made me think about... um, your sort of golden rule for travel for yourself that you put in your book, VJ, which is the place should not only be unique to you, but you should be unique to the place as well. So I thought maybe we could like delve into that a little bit more on that kind of subject. Why do you, why, why is that your golden rule? Why don't we start there? Yeah. Um, so that is my golden rule because for me, travel is a lot about making experiences uh, with people. Mm-hmm. And I found that in general, you know, you go to a place that's foreign to you, but there are folks that look like you, or you're not bringing a lot culturally that's different or that's unique. Um, you don't get the two way cultural exchange going. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, that was super interesting about the Russia trip um, was that, you know, not only is Russia unique to me, but I'm clearly unique to Russia, both from a looks perspective, from what I do in my career, um, from how I dress or talk, and even culturally. And um, those types of experiences are the ones that are just going to be super conducive for for understanding and breaking down barriers. For me, uh, you know, I like to define a difference between ignorance and racism. Mm -hmm. I know some people don't like that. 
but I, I, I like making that difference. I think there is such a thing as like being Islamophobic versus just being racist. It just means I haven't seen someone from that culture, or understand someone from that culture. And we can talk more about that if that's like something worth debating. But, but for me, um, I often find that, that in these places that ascribe to that golden rule actually have a good positive impact on folks' impressions of your culture. And you can, in, in some way, almost for free, be sort of a cultural ambassador in, in that type of respect. And so for me, actually, that golden rule of travel is, is, is twofold. It's one, I think the experience is better for you um, because you have more opportunities to make those connections with locals on the ground. But two, I actually think it's just better overall um, because you're bringing something to the table uh, and you have an opportunity to correct um ignorance so to speak so so for me that that really came across as a golden rule of travel that's interesting and i so i would have to say that that my definition of ignorance versus racism is definitely a little less tolerant than yours yeah um, <laughs> cool let's get into my, that <laughs> what my experience in russia was overwhelmingly positive but i would never sugarcoat what I experienced when talking to anyone so this is something that's come so something that I've been working on um with some Russia studies faculties at U.S. universities is getting more students of color to study Russia Eastern Europe and Eurasia and one of the key things that we come up against so I've been talking to Latino students indigenous students um you know people from you know, all kinds of different racial, sexual backgrounds. And the thing that stops them going is that they just don't have a support network because there simply isn't a common understanding of what it is like to spend a long period of time in Russia as someone who isn't white. And the problem is that the that faculties in the US and in the UK are overwhelmingly white, especially when it comes to area studies. So, you know, it's all very well to send your students off to have a nice time in Russia, but if you're not giving them that psychological support and you're not there for them the entire way, it can be an extremely exhausting experience. So, you know, whenever I talk to someone about my experience there, and I'll say that, you know, I would 100% do it again. But there were times, there were multiple times when I had, you know, breakdowns because it is exhausting. There was days when I didn't want to go outside because I didn't want to be an exhibit for all the Russian people out there, you know. And it wasn't like, you know, I was depressed the whole year, but it was psychologically very wearing. And I think that's something that people need to be aware of, both as travellers and if they want to spend time there for work or for study. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and- I absolutely agree that that there should be a bright line as far as describing the reality of what the situation on the ground is. And so by no means do we like mean to uh, disparage experiences that people have of uncomfort, discomfort in Russia. If you read the book, I have multiple instances of discomfort in Russia. And a lot of the book is like about a catharsis of learning to overcome that and learning to flip perspective. Should the onus be on individuals to always flip perspective and to always overcome that in an ideal world? No, the onus should be on people to not put people in positions where they're uncomfortable. And like, I have a pretty simple rule that, you know, if someone is offended by something, it's offensive, right? And so like, people often like to say things like, you know, I didn't mean it that way. Like, you know, like you have to soft skin. No, it's like pretty simple. If you have respect for a human being, if somebody's telling you they're offended by something, stop doing that. Like, why is that hard? That's a pretty easy rule. So so for me, that that's how I feel about it. I, I totally agree. You know, you should post about the experiences that made you feel uncomfortable. The flip side of it for me and where I make the distinction on sort of like the the ignorance aspect is 
why should a Russian know anything about like Indian culture or more particularly an Indian American experience? They probably haven't seen those people before. I can't expect them to have that knowledge or that notion of what's comfortable or uncomfortable for me. All I can expect is after I tell them something's uncomfortable, don't do it again. You know, yeah. but I can't expect them to have that knowledge up front. So that's where I try and make the distinction because I would say there's an earlier time in my life where like, you know, one question that used to piss me off is that people would come up and say, do you speak Indian? And there's no language called Indian. There's like 27 different languages. It's an ignorant thing. It's something that irked me. And today, like after that Russia trip, it just doesn't irk me as much because it's like, if you didn't grow up around Indians, why would you know that? You know, like most people probably don't know the national language of Rwanda. Should a Rwandan get mad at me for not knowing that immediately? So if someone asks, try and try and give them the benefit of the doubt. But post you giving them the benefit of the doubt, absolutely no tolerance for it. That's typically my rule. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a pretty healthy way of viewing it because um, I also come from a bit of a, a strange background because I, I look Asian, but I grew up in Britain. My parents are both white because I'm adopted. So I don't, even if I wanted to, I can't fall back on some Asian heritage because I simply don't have it. And, you know, I was happy to be identified as British when I was in Russia and I'm happy to talk to Russians about British things, but often because they didn't believe that I was British, they would just keep drilling down and be like, okay, but tell us Chinese things. I'm like, even if I wanted to, I simply cannot. And what was interesting is that because my experience there was shaped by being part of the university is that I had quite a lot of contact with people that you would consider to be, you know, the liberal elites of Russia, the people who are politically liberal, the people who have had a chance to study abroad and meet people um, that aren't that aren't Slavic Russians. But even in those elite and liberal institutions, there are some very ingrained assumptions there. So, for example, I took a class um, on international relations. And I told the professor multiple times, I am British, but she had to identify me in class every time as our Chinese friend. I was always and she couldn't understand why that was wrong. And I had to deal with that for a whole semester. And so I totally agree with your point that, you know, you can't expect Russian people to understand what it means for your face to not match your voice and not to match your identity. But I think that I, I come at it from more of a perspective of having to deal with that over a long period of time, people not wanting to accept right. what I told them about my cultural identity. Yeah, in a situation where you express discomfort with that and, and you know the teacher continues to refer to you that way the rest of the semester, for me, that's unforgivable, right? And, and that's something that you just can't really chalk up as cultural. Um, so there's no way to gloss over something like that. That you know, that's just wrong. Yeah. It's really interesting that you guys have, you know, it's really nice to hear some sort of varied experiences within the same place. But also, I guess you are coming at it from slightly different things. Like one was a trip, like, um, I'm, am I right in thinking? So, so I've always wanted to do the Trans-Siberian, but I haven't done it yet. You don't spend huge amounts of time in any one place. Is that right? Yeah, usually, you know, so we were on for about three weeks and going across the country from St. Petersburg, ending all the way in Mongolia. Yeah. So you know, we're spending two to three days per city that we're stopping off in. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of time on the train and half the time, those three weeks on the train, half the times in the cities, it's not the same type of experience as living for six to 12 months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm sort of thinking here. Like, you know, I guess there is like a magic of traveling. Like every, like, you know, if you get traveling right, it can be brilliant. And you sort of, there's almost nothing bad. Like, not obviously the bad things happen, but like 
you sort of are in this kind of like rose tinted world and like when it's good it's great and blah but if you live somewhere for like a really long time you obviously are going to see more of like the ingrained societal expectations frameworks prejudices and I guess that kind of you know that's sort of reflected in like the different experiences that both of you had um I'm trying to think like how, how what sort of like best i've been writing things down as you guys have been saying been chatting it's so interesting to listen to you both i think it was you emily you brought up sexuality um as one aspect that you really wanted to you know help find support for other students who wanted to go over to russia and i think this kind of also leads very because this is something that really came up on my trip that a lot of the boys that i was with they were really concerned for how they were dressing and they didn't want to um i guess be mistaken as gay and you know what that would not because they had an issue with it but they were really concerned about you know famously in, in the last sort of 10 years under the Putin regime Russia has not been particularly kind for you know gay people bisexual people lesbians um and I guess this kind of brings me on to like the question of politics here how do you get past those kind of political differences when you go to a country how does you know a gay person say you know why am i bothering giving giving my money ultimately to a country that you know not only culturally is so different but like legally has limitations in place for people like myself and i guess i kind of wondered what your what your guys's take was on that sure so so you know i think that individual decisions are a matter of conscience i assume if i were someone who identified in the lgbtq community i may have a higher level of trepidation about going to Russia. But I'll caveat that aside for now, and I'll, I'll probably give you an argument in favor of going. And I think there are a lot of good arguments for it. Um, the first one I would say is, the first thing I noticed in Russia is the concept of politics being, you know, in any way related to the general population um, is something that I learned to divorce immediately. Like I cleaved off the government versus the population. And in reflecting back too, as an American over the last four years, I would hope that others would give the same benefit of the doubt that you would cleave off the general pop from the population. But, you know, as an American, my hands are probably not immediately implicit in, in Trump separating babies from the border. And in the same sense, in Russia, when I'm going to visit and injecting money into a local economy, I'm paying a vendor for Poroshki, that type of experience, it's divorced from the people that I met. And so I wasn't meeting, you know, like top level KGB Putin state agents. Okay. Right. <laughs> like the people here were general people that were in Siberia that wanted to be friendly, that were divorced from the politics. And the notion that that spending money is immediately hoovering up into the hands of, you know, propagandists or communists. It's not really reality. Right. So I think context applies. I think the second thing I would say is if you're gonna play this game, um, you drive a car, right? Like, do you buy gasoline that's coming from Saudi Arabia, which is the most repressive evil oil regime ever? And so the game can get tokenistic at some point around, hey, I'm not going to spend. And it can also just get really difficult. Um, so I think there's context. Like, if you were to say, are there limits to where you would travel? I would say probably yes. Like, I probably wouldn't travel to Xinjiang right now, where there's an active, like, genocidal regime with the CCP. Like, that would probably be an argument that I would make. But I think we have to have some nuance around, you know, me or Emily spending some time in Russia, putting money into a local economy, and somehow we're now proponents or, or backers of the Putin regime. There has to be some nuance in that conversation. No, I was just going to say, I totally agree with you, Vijay. That was my thought process when I was deciding about whether to study abroad in Russia, because I, I clearly do not endorse the Putin regime. I have no love for the way that they run the country. But as you say, 
the culture and the people, while if not entirely separate entities, merit our appreciation regardless of who happens to be in the Kremlin right now. Um, you know, it was interesting because my mum my is American and she grew up at the height of the Cold War. And so when I told her that I was going to stay in Russia, that was, she like flipped out. She was like, you can't go to the Soviet Union. That's not okay. And I had American family members being like, who is the general secretary of the Soviet Union now? But, you know, when you really get down to it, yes, I had a couple of, you know, slightly unpleasant interactions because I'm Western. Like at one time I was in a, these all things always seem to happen in taxis to me. I don't know why, but I'm in a taxi. <laughs> Just get the bus, Emily. <laughs> Because so I don't. Do you guys remember the Skripal poisoning that happened like yeah. two years ago? It happened in Salisbury in England, and so this was quite present in the minds of a lot of Russians. And so in taxi, a guy was shouting at me, being like, "How dare your country accuse our country of poisoning one of our own?" I'm like, "I'm really sorry. I'm not accusing you of doing anything." Um, but like those interactions were very rare, and like Vijay is saying, like once you start going down that slippery slope of saying where where and where you're not going to spend money, life becomes basically impossible. So I would say that, you know, it is a matter of individual conscious. I wouldn't, you know, rebuke someone for not wanting to go to Russia for political reasons. But equally, that was something that I overcame. And I think that, you know, my life experience is the richer for it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that you, that you guys, you know, talk about, you know, this this idea of separation from people from government. And Vijay, you said that, you know, it's not like the money that you spend in some random cafe in the corner of Moscow is not suddenly being swept up into the hands of, you know, the oligarchical society of Russia. And it's it's true because I, I remember I, I was I had dinner at my friend's host family one evening that I was there and, you know, by Western standards, this was not a particularly wealthy family, but probably some of the most hospitable people I've ever come across in my life. You know, it was sort of five course dinner and ever, and I wasn't even like their host child as it were, like they just, they just had me there. And in some broken Russian and English, I spoke to the father and he worked in the travel industry. And he was telling me about how the sanctions that the uh, European government and European community have put on Russia and about how they affect his work and it and it really got me thinking about the way in which we think about you know spending money and these interactions with these countries and who is actually affected here and you know are these things helpful like are are they helpful at all I would perhaps argue that maybe they're not particularly helpful what do you guys what do you guys think I think it's a it's a totally fair point I mean I think about the same thing too you know we put sanctions on North Korea there's 25.5 million people in North Korea it's like you know like 25 million of them just want a better life Mm-hmm. And now they're being strengthened. You know, we put sanctions on Iran. The vast majority of Iranians, you, you will see it's the most hospitable cultural you're, you're, you'll ever have if you get the chance to visit it, right? Um, all of these places, you know, unless you can prove there's some direct link between the money you're spending. And by the way, as a, a backpacking college student, I certainly didn't have enough money to make any dent on any impact. On any <laughs> so, so true. So, but like the, the reality is, you know, like these trips for me, the goodwill that you would get with people and to use Emily's own words, it's like the merit and the appreciation for the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, those outweigh like the trivial amount of spending that you're making. And I would argue that, that most of the spending that you're doing is helping the community. You know, when I'm buying piroshki or bread from a grandmother in a rail station, uh, she's not, you know, 
hoovering that right up to the highest levels or the highest coffers of government. So, you know, I think, again, it's an individual conscience decision uh, in, in either event, you know, you have to understand and respect both perspectives on it. And I can totally understand somebody who's part of the LGBT community saying, I don't want to go there. I can also totally understand somebody on the opposite side who's like, I want to go there and I want to show them who I am and like that this culture exists and it's good. Hmm. Interestingly, so uh, towards the end of my year in Moscow, my, one of my best friends from London came over and he's actually, he's a, he identifies, well, he's gender fluid, but he identifies as, as being gay and he is of Indian descent and so for him, it was kind of a double whammy deciding to come to Russia, both from the perspective of race and from the perspective of sexuality. But he managed somehow to reconcile his mind that, you know, I, a, he said, you'll be there to protect me. You can shout at them if they're mean to me. <laughs> but he, um, it was funny because he was asking me before, like, how do straight people dress? I don't want to seem gay while I'm in Russia. Um, and it was really interesting experience because you know both of us had unpleasant experiences when we were walking around Moscow together but you know overall he also came away with a generally positive perspective of of his time in Russia and he he even some of his attitudes towards not to the Putin regime but to the Soviet Union and to, to the to the political history they have there changed as a result of going so yeah I mean I think it is a matter of personal choice, but I think ultimately the positives can, in some cases, outweigh the negatives. It's interesting that you mentioned your friend looking at you as sort of like the muscle or the protector on the trip. Um, you know, we obviously in our trip, there's there's three people, so I was not the only one there. Um, and, and often we joke about just because situations that we're in, um, and this even applies in the U.S., you know, is a situation in the U.S. I'm driving, I get pulled over. Um, the person waves my speeding ticket because it says, looks like you have good friends. Um, and, and similar in Russia where, you know, the second night um, had a police officer pull a baton on us, actually uh, pull a baton on me, excuse me, uh, and ask where I was going and, and had Jeremy come in and step in the white savior role and speak to the officer in Russian and was immediately let off. So uh, it is something that we have to consider, like, right? Like um, I didn't go solely in alone as a brown man, I had a white man with me as sort of my muscle. Um, your friend had you with you as sort of his muscle. It's just an interesting burden that, that we have to think about and carry. And, and to your point about not like sugarcoating the reality, like it's true. Like we feel uncomfortable in these places and part of it is our perspective. But part of it is true. Like, um, you know, it is the reality of what we face. That story about, um, about your friend managing to fend off the policeman, it reminds me. So there was this moment so I went with a couple of other students to this tiny backwater town which is like an hour outside of Moscow you get one of the electrichka trains that go at like five miles an yeah. hour um so we went out there and th one of the students that I went with was from Iran and he you know he looked very clearly Middle Eastern and he got pulled aside by a policeman who was demanding to see his papers because it's very common in Russia is that if they see anyone of a slightly darker persuasion they immediately assume that you're like a Tajik migrant and they need to check the documentation. But this guy was flipping through this Iranian passport, and he didn't understand where... First of all, he wasn't convinced that Iran was a real place, and my Iranian friend didn't have any Russians. I couldn't explain. So I had to come in and be an Asian savior and start shouting at this policeman in Russian, being like, Iran is a real place. You need to let this guy go. 
Such these really are these bonkers stories, and they are almost seem improbable to people. And some of them are very positive, some of them are very negative. They are just they are absolutely bonkers. But I actually sort of coming back to to, to your trip specifically, VJ, is you talk about your lack of preparedness on this trip. Now I'm kind of with you in your like in what you sort of write about in the book. I don't think travel should be too prepared in any way. I mean, I'm I'm definitely someone that sort of. I'll identify some hotspots or things like that, but I, I do sort of like like to go with the flow. The one thing I did do, however, is I learned Cyrillic before I went because I thought it would be at least helpful to be able to read some signs. And it's also interesting that you said in the story about your friend coming in to help you out is that he had Russian too. So not only was he white, he actually could um, communicate with people. Do you think that that makes a difference? Yeah. Well, actually, my friend learns Cyrillic, so he could read the signs, but he certainly couldn't communicate with people. Okay. Uh, okay. But. But but it, it did make a difference from, from a real perspective. Um, the point about non-preparedness is, you know, it it's not necessarily something that I encourage others to emulate. <laughs> but that there is a real sort of like joy or magic around the feeling of unpreparedness in, in, in the book. I was so unprepared that literally did not know the Russian word for exit and spent, you know, like an hour and a half trying to exit the subway station because I couldn't figure out where it goes. And, and so Emily knows the subway stations in Moscow super deep like you take a three minute escalator ride down to the bottom so you can imagine me you know looking like a fool for the first you know hour and a half trying to figure out literally how to exit a subway station um but but some level of preparedness is always going to be uh useful in those interactions and um having my friend Avi being able to read a bit of Cyrillic helps and also point out that that uh you know the effort matters right when when folks make the effort to speak russian uh we had a lot of good positive experiences come of that because folks care about you trying more than you being successful. And so um, while I encourage the the disinterested or, or, or unprepared aspect of travel for sort of like the fortuitous and serendipitous events that you'll get, uh, it is nice to have a person in your back pocket that uh, is covering your ass for sure. Absolutely. And it's sort of, it's, it's, as you say, a little bit of effort goes a long way. And it's, as we've been talking about, you know, ignorance and cultural exchange as a traveler, it's on you to do that too, right? Like, it's not just for you to go in and say, I speak English or American English. I am, this is how I identify. Everybody's going to be, you know, discriminatory to me. Prove me wrong. That isn't the point. If, that, if that's your attitude, why go? There really is like no point. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, it's definitely something that goes both ways. It's going with an open mind. It opens to the fact that you might be, you, your preconceptions of people might be wrong. And just in the same way that, you know, you had a police officer that didn't know Iran was a real place. I have absolutely no idea what, you know, the far east of Russia looks like, what's there, what isn't. In my mind, it's all Siberian mountains and that's that. But I'm wrong and I'm well aware that I'm wrong. So, yeah, it's like definitely like it's an exchange that goes both ways, right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting that you mentioned the far east. So I I didn't have Vijay's luck, luck of being able to go on the Trans-Siberian. I still something I want to do. But I did get out to Siberia to go to Irkutsk and Lake Baikal, which was one of the best experiences I've ever yeah. had. But what's super interesting out there is that um, Irkutsk is in Buryatia, and Buryat's people look Chinese for the most part. And it was like kind of a revelation for me because I, coming from Moscow, I was just used to being stared at all the time simply because I looked Asian. But suddenly in Irkutsk, I was like really nothing special because I just looked like every other Buryat person on the street. So when we talk about being a person of colour in Russia, we also have to remember that Russia is a country of over 100 ethnicities, right. many of whom themselves do not look white. 
So travelling in St. Petersburg in Moscow as a person of colour from the West is going to be an immensely different experience from, as I'm sure Vijay knows, travelling in Siberia, where people look far more East Asian. Totally. Yeah. And I, interesting that you brought that up, because I was really curious about um, where you spent the majority of your time. Uh, and to your point, I think, you know, I would imagine you got a lot fewer stares in like Irkutsk or Tumen or like places in Siberia where folks have more Asiatic features. Maybe it was comf- a little bit more comfortable for you, maybe a little bit less burdensome for you to have to deal with, the, you know, like the, the microscope on you at all times in, in those situations. Um, to go back to, to Frankie a bit, you know, I totally agree with your point. You know, I think belonging is a two way street, right? You, you put in what you get out. Um, and, 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 you know, for the most part, a lot of the perspective shift was to around uh, not just people need to make me feel welcome and roll out a red carpet for me, but also I need to feel like I belong here and I need to put in the effort to understand local cultures and customs. And I think a lot of like what I experienced too was a reflection on, um, am I being treated differently because of how differently I look or how differently I behave? Mm-hmm. Because as Frankie said at the beginning, there's an American way of behaving that's very, very different. It's loud. It's obnoxious. It's not that not to say that we were loud or obnoxious, but it's different than culture. When we do things differently, people are going to look at us differently. So, so you know, if you think about the analogy, it's always interesting to invert. Like, if you invert to like Russian person comes to California, uh, rides on the BART train with me, speaks to me in Russian, doesn't understand the word for exit. Like, I'm probably going to be way less helpful to him than than these people were to me. And take way less interest in him, to be honest, than those people can be. So you always have to think about it from the perspective of it being a two-way street for belonging, I think. Yeah. Just, you know, saying, you were talking about, as you say, that Russia is a place of over 100 million people. Is that right? That's sort of, okay. And so many different ethnicities, so many different regions, so many different cultures. I guess we sort of assume that Moscow and St. Petersburg will be the most cosmopolitan places because generally... You know, it's the case in the UK. I, I assume it is the same in the US. Cities are more diverse. Cities are more cosmopolitan. Just, you know, of interest, did you find that actually the further east you went, the more diverse it became? Or was it that not maybe not the case? Oh, it's absolutely more diverse the, the further east you go. Right. Uh, and Emily can speak to you. you know, she spent a lot of time in Moscow and St. Petersburg. So I'm curious how you think about it. But from my perspective, um, the faces went from uniformly white in St. Petersburg to starting to get like an Asiatic mix as you moved uh, to the East. Now um, we didn't get really darker skin tones at all. And that's where the uniqueness still stayed for me. And the experience still stayed sort of uh, to your point, you know, with Moscow and St. Petersburg being more cosmopolitan, I probably got less attention and less questions in those areas than I did as I went further East. But there's also more comfort, different skin types as you go further East. Right. Yes. I I think that I, I agree with Vijay that the further East you go, the less white it becomes Basically, Moscow and St. Petersburg are interesting places, though, because there are large Central Asian populations, because almost all of Russia's manual labor is done by, you know, Tajik, Kazakh, Uzbek migrants that come to Russia for better salaries. But there's a very clear ghettoization of those populations. You know, no matter how good their Russian is, they will always be pulled over by police. They will always be harassed. And they are kind of, you know... Not that there's any law saying that they all have to live in the same place, but that's simply how the social structure has turned out mm-hmm. in the cities. So I've had a lot of kind of heated disagreements with Slavic Russians who say, oh, but, but Moscow is diverse. We have Central Asian migrants. And I say, yes, but are they true? Do you treat them like members of your society and like they belong in Moscow? Generally not. So I think that there's kind of, 
surface level diversity, like, yes, there are Tajik people in Moscow, but is it a true embracing of those people and their cultures, or is it just instrumentally using them and then sending them back? Yeah, that's a good point as far as integration goes too, because, and sorry to cut you off there, Frankie, I would say, you know, one, one, one aspect I mean, here sometimes too is like, in this day and age where we have racial animosity in America, people will say like, brown man in Russia, like what about brown man in America? And I will say the crucial difference as far as racism perceived here versus racism perceived in other places, and in particular Russia for me, feels like um, part of the American experience growing up is to really integrate minorities into inculcating a belief in being American. I'm not sure if that's something that's done in British schools where you're inculcated with the belief that you're British, but like we never refer to ourselves by our primary ethnicity growing up, whereas I see in other countries, um, even folks who are in Russia, but maybe like are immigrants from other places will refer primarily to their uh, country of origin as their ethnicity. And, and, and to Emily's point, it's a bit of a yes and. You could call Moscow diverse, yes. And are you really integrating them well and making them feel like they are truly Russian? And for me, that's part of where um, the varying degrees of, of race come into play, where it's less of a factor here, more of a factor in places where you don't feel integrated with your home country. Right. I just, I kind of want to bounce in here. And it's interesting that you bring up the US too, because I was also going to, is that I want to sort of talk about an economic element here too, because as you're talking about, you know, workers and, and, and in Moscow, often, you know, migrants coming in from Central Asia are generally given like labor jobs and those, those kind of things. Um, but it also relates to something that you wrote about Emily, which is that when you went to go and see, um, is it a red star over Moscow? Was that the exhibition at the Tate? Yes. And yes, you, you talked about it. that that was the first time or one of the first times in a sort of British gallery that you'd seen um, men and women of colour represented in art and and celebrated. Um, is that am I getting am I getting like the right end of the stick here of your of the article that you wrote? Uh, yes, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. So it's one of those things where you know I I don't want to glorify communist propaganda, but when it it is very striking was uh, so you know the representation of Asian women in Western art if we're ever represented at all. Is terrible, right? We're just, you know, dam- exotic damsels in distress that need to be saved by like white British colonialists coming to the East. So when I look at those representations of if in Soviet propaganda, regardless of what connection they have to reality or not, it is powerful to see at least a respectful representation of people of colour at a time when that is not something you would have seen in Western capitalist societies. This is quite a, a, a tense point if you talk to, you know, emigres from the former Soviet Union, because they obviously have that traumatic experience of communism, and I don't want to deny that that was real, and it was a, it was a very harsh place for the majority of people. But the legacy of the Soviet idea of this friendship of peoples no matter how far down it went, does have still an impact in in the way that you are treated as a person of colour in in the post-Soviet space, particularly among those older generations who, you know, were taught about that idea when they grew up. So actually, a lot of the racism I encountered was from younger people who you would think would be more modern and more westward leaning. But actually, a lot of the kindness that I received was from the older populations who, you know, remember you know, Trushba Narod, the Friendship of Peoples propaganda of Soviet times. Wow, that's interesting. So, but that, this kind of like was going to lead to my question, and you've kind of set me up very nicely there. It's like, do you think there is, 
an element of sort of like the economic systems and how that's changed in Russia. How, do you think that's had an impact on, you know, the way diversity is viewed in the country? So to go back to the point about Russia-China relations, definitely the economics have a huge impact on how Chinese people are perceived. Right. The, um, so, you know, Chinese people tend to travel in these kind of big tour groups, like that's how they tend to go to Russia. Um, and so the attitude towards Chinese people in Moscow is, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stereotyping, but they also know that Chinese people bring money. Like China is a rich country, the tourists are coming to Moscow to spend money. And so that financial element definitely fed into, you know, if I didn't tell someone I was British, it feeds into how I was treated as someone of Asian appearance, because they associate that with the wealth that China projects into the world and that the tourists bring when they come to Moscow. Yeah. And one thing I guess I would piggyback on that is, you know, we didn't really talk too much about this, but there's often like this unfair burden that's placed on minorities when you're traveling to a new place to sort of represent or speak for your entire group. I only want to represent or speak for myself, Mm. but I also understand the people that see me on the train that haven't seen an Indian person before, maybe an American before are going to judge me and make their preconception uh, of me or make their conception of me become their conception of everyone else who comes forward. So we sort of carry that burden. I know you probably carried that burden as like the Chinese spokesman and you don't want that burden, but it's an unfair burden that's like sort of placed on us. And um, unfortunately we do have to deal with that uh, on our travels and on our trips. So people often ask me when I've tell them, you know, I'm, I've been you know interested in Russia for the best part of six years. How did that happen? So for me, the story was, I happened to be on a school trip there the month that the Crimea was annexed. And pretty wild time to go to Russia, actually. So we landed, I remember we flew from Amsterdam to Moscow. And it was a really small plane and there was a huge Russian. I have interaction with huge burly Russian men, I don't know why. Um, This man behind me is screaming, Nova Russia, Nova Russia. (laughs) And he's talking about the Crimea and he's so excited. And obviously everything we heard over here was that this was this annexation that no one could quite believe had happened. And, you know, the press was overwhelmingly negative over here. So without passing judgment on this man, I sort of went away and had a look at what Nova Russia meant. And it was a term that goes back to Catherine the Great and about, you know, the expansion of Russia in that time. And, you know, for me, that sort of sparked an interest in memory politics. And that's kind of my why Russia story. So I wanted to hear from both of you, like, why Russia? Like, you know, Vijay, I know you talk about, you know, the desire for a Mongolian Christmas. That's so random, but I completely understand it. Like, in a really weird way, I get it. So I... so. I want to ask you both, why is Russia special to you? Like, why do you think, you know, Russia was, of all the travels you've done, why Russia? Why was that, you know, why the Trans-Siberian? Why was it so unique compared to everyone else? And the same with you, Emily. You spent your whole life studying about this country and this culture and this whole area. And I just want to know why. Yeah, that's great. Um, maybe I'll go first. And so there's a book that's, that's pretty important to me. It's written by John Howard Griffin. It's called Black Like Me. And in the book, there's a white American journalist, uh, early 1960s, decides to run a social experiment. Probably wouldn't be considered uh, a thing that that would be advisable in this day and age, but he essentially um, masks himself as a black person. And what he wants to do is go through the South and figure out, you know, like, what is this experience really like? Uh, He comes away, like, abused. Um, He writes a whole book on it. He becomes a, a pretty heavy, like, supporter of the civil rights movement and becomes really impactful there. 
Um, early in the book, he writes about his justification for why he wanted to make the trip. And he really succinctly describes it and says, I decided I would do it. And there's not a whole lot more behind that. Um, and a lot of my motivation for traveling to Russia or wanting a Mongolian Christmas is really just captured by that. It's something I decided I would do. There isn't a whole ton of context or, or, or like large thinking behind it. But what I will say is um, for me, uh, the most important part of, of these types of conversations is just being able to tell multiple stories. And a really cool part about this podcast is not just hearing my story from a brown person's perspective, hearing Emily's story. Um, you know, the writer Chimimanda Adichie, the Nigerian author, writes about the danger of telling a single story. And I had read the story by Paul Thoreau about taking the Trans-Siberian Railway. And I think that's where my first sort of notion of the Trans-Siberian and Mongolian Christmas came from. Uh, but I also understand that, that Paul Thoreau is a white American who would have a different experience there. And so I wanted to be a person that, that is able to, to write multiple stories on this, introduce multiple perspectives on it. And that's, that's my story of why I decided to do it. But at the end of the day, we did get our Mongolian Christmas and, and I can't explain like that ineluctable desire for us to be there, uh, but we made it happen. Um, did you just quickly, did you, when you went, did you know you were going to write the book? No, I did not. Uh, I definitely came uh, with no intention to do that or really to pull lessons or experiences from it. That's something that manifested itself later. So I always kind of, people often ask me the why Russia question. Yeah. My parents ask me the why Russia question. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I understand why I've committed so much of my academic and professional life to this country that I have no personal connection to. Um, but I come along a kind of, fairly traditional trajectory in the sense that it was the literature that got me interested first you know I'm, I'm a big fan of Anna Karenina and War and Peace and yes I did manage to read all of War and Peace and I actually really enjoyed it in um, Russian or in English uh in English I don't trust my Russian for that yet okay um, <laughs> but um so it started with that and then one summer Basically, I was incredibly bored and I decided, oh, I should teach myself Cyrillic. This is something that could pass the time. So I got an app on my phone and I taught myself Cyrillic. And then, um, so my undergraduate degree was actually in English literature, like nothing to do with Russian. Um, but I took Russian language on the side and I attended a couple lectures on Russian politics and history. And I realized that, you know, these are where my interests really lied. And for me, as I think with a lot of people who would define as Russianists, is that um, there's something about Russia that's just so wonderfully dramatic. Like every country has its, you know, amazing ups and downs of history. But I think what really drew me is that Russia's 20th century is one of the most dramatic centuries that you can imagine. You know, there's like three, there's, you know, they had revolutions, they killed their monarchy, they, you know, the, the sheer trials and tribulations of the of the communist regime there's just something immensely appealing about the kind of dramatic highs and lows and I think that's what what keeps me coming back to it yeah it's like that dramatic element but also the spontaneity and I guess this will probably lead me to my last question because I am very conscious of the time um so you Vijay you just said that you you retrospectively decided to write the book but there yeah. were huge amounts of lessons to be pulled from this and the spontaneity of this place and this like bizarre, but I think quite magical place. What did make you eventually decide to write the book? 
Yeah. Um, for me, I, I initially decided to go smaller version. I, I gave a talk on it. Um, right, and, yeah. and afterwards, I, I got some interest from some publishers who had watched the talk. And they were like, did you decide? Um, have you thought about writing a book here? And that's actually what initially pinged my, 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 my juices around writing it. I hadn't thought about doing it. Uh, when I spent more time reflecting upon it, I think I realized, um, to your point, Russia just has this inherently indescribable, ineluctable quality of just being like a place of like general fascination. Um, and, and, and the notion that um, we were able to go out into Siberia in the middle of winter, for me, sort of being essentially the first time I saw snow in my life and having all of these crazy, absurd stories, some of which we've documented, most of which we haven't. I mean, I'm sure we could go for hours just documenting those stories. Um, felt like something that I, I wanted to do personally, uh, get that out there. But but also, uh, you know, I wanted the opportunity to present uh, not just the negatives, but the positives. And, and I had an amazing experience in Russia. I know, Frankie, you speak really positively of Russia. And I look back really, really fondly upon my time in Russia. Where we spent a lot of time like talking about some of the difficulties, some of the trials we faced, but the reality is at the end of the day, I came away with a feeling of satisfaction uh, and a feeling uh, of being fulfilled um, through this trip. And it's a place I want to go back to that I maintain friends from and that will always have sort of like a, a degree of um, love in my heart for. And, and so for me, being able to codify that um, through writing, hopefully help minorities out, have an opportunity to travel and see experiences from a travel writer that may look or relate a little bit more to them uh, and, and give people the chance to overcome uh what would be described as Luke's healthy skepticism. I hope I did a little bit of that through the book. And that's sort of um, my, my reason and my desire for publishing that. Like, I was really glad, frankly, when you set up this podcast, because I think like CJ's book and podcasts like this are so important for opening up pathways for other people of color to be able to experience the like weird and wonderful magic that is Russia. Because, you know, it's a daunting prospect for a lot of people, whether they're white or whether they're a person of color, so, you know, to see other people that you can relate to, um, you know, whether that's on to do with sexuality or that's to do with your racial identity, who have kind of trod that path for you, it suddenly becomes a lot more, a lot easier to take that step. So, you know, we kind of follow in the footsteps of, you know, great African-American writers like Langston Hughes, who traveled through the Soviet Union and wrote about his experiences as a black man in the in, you know in the mid 20th century and reading that was a really positive experience for me because that was the first time I had read a non-white perspective of traveling through that space so I think that you know the more we tell stories like this the more we open doors for other people Great. well said that is really like a really wonderful note to end on thank you so much thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast this episode was presented and recorded by Frankie Shalom and was edited by Rafi Hay. Our thanks to Emily Cooch and Vijay Menon, whose book A Brown Man in Russia is available from the Pushkin House shop. Please make sure to subscribe to the Pushkin House podcast on Apple Podcasts and Acast, and check out pushkinhouse.org for events, blogs, and much more. Thanks for listening.